And as all of you guys know, today we actually are closing out our series on evangelism uh, entitled God's Good News. Uh, It's been a great time being able to start off this year thinking more intently about what evangelism is, what the gospel is, and what is our role uh, in this whole process. Um, You guys know that we had two messages starting off the year thinking about God's heart for evangelism, Um, what it looks like that God the Father is exalting his Son uh, through all of the world, and how do we uh, play a part in that. We had a message from the book of, of Joan about God's heart for the lost. That though he is a just God and though uh, indeed all people will face condemnation, he has compassion and wants people to turn and repent for their sins. Uh, we also heard two messages these past two weeks about the practicality of evangelism. You know, how do we understand God's sovereignty and our responsibility in that process of sharing the gospel? And then also, what is our mentality as we go about sharing the gospel? What does it mean that we should be bold to be trusting in the Lord in all of these things? And today, we actually have the opportunity to be able to sum up everything with a very, very simple question. What is the gospel? As you're thinking about how you can share with those around you, whether that is later this afternoon or in your workplaces or in your schools, what is actually this message that we're supposed to declare And I'll be honest, even up front, you know, I've preached uh, quite a few times over my life, and yet this is actually the most difficult message I've ever had to study for. Because as you're thinking about the gospel, it is very much a simple, simple message, right? And yet there's so much depth to it. There's so much meaning behind what it is that we believe in. And so, especially as we're going to God's word, I hope that you would please join with me in a word of prayer, just even as we approach God's word. Father, we are in awe as always that we indeed have salvation. There is nothing that we have done to deserve what we have. There is nothing good in us that we should be saved. And yet, Jesus Christ, you have come and died on a cross for our sins. For that, we are so grateful. We pray that even now that you would be with us as we look at your word, as we see just the truths of your scripture, that every one of us would be changed, that every one of us would have the desire to share this good news with those around us. We thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I think a lot of you know that uh, before I came into full-time ministry, I was actually working as a piano teacher. I had the opportunity of being able to teach many young ones and people even up to high school about how to play the piano and the many intricacies of it. And at least for my area, I was able to teach it at a relatively high level, at least for the local uh, area. You know, being able to bring my students to competitions and performances and examinations. And through all of that, we really got to go into all the depths of what piano really is. You know, how, how every single composer, as they would compose their pieces, had a very specific nuance of what it meant to play that piece. You know, we're able to get into very complex topics like, how do you deal with the pressure of competition and performance? How do you actually manage all that stress? And that when you're playing the piano, how it's not just playing notes, but you're actually massaging the keys, trying to make it sing. There are all sorts of these very complex different topics that we're able to cover that you actually do when you're teaching piano. But as complex as it would get, I was always struck by this one particular student I had to teach. Uh, She was a young girl, maybe seven or eight years old. She was very much a beginner, just learning all the ropes of piano. And I remember teaching her some of the most basic fundamental concepts of piano playing. I are going through the piano, how it's, it's done through the letters of the alphabet A through G, right? You have the letter C, the middle C, which is the very first note. 
And all the piano is broken up into black notes and white notes, and all those create different kinds of sounds, right? We were going through the very most fundamental aspects of piano, but I was struck by this little girl, because every time I would say anything about the very basics, she would always turn me and go, but why? (laughs) Right, from the very beginning, this is letter C, this is middle C, but why? I don't know, little girl. It just is, right? It just get used to it. Uh, and we would go through all these other concepts about the most fundamental things, and every single time I would say any sentence, she would go, but why? And eventually, I got kind of frustrated, right? I'm like, okay, stop asking the question. I don't know why. This is just how it is. And eventually, you know, as she continued to grow older, she eventually stopped asking why, and we were able to continue on with her lessons. But that, that girl always stuck with me in my mind. Because I think that is kind of what happens to us as Christians a lot of the times, isn't it? We get in this place where we start going more in depth with all the various aspects and nuances of our Christian faith, right? You know, why should we be sharing the gospel? What are the, the doctrines that we should know? How do you practically live out being a member of the church? And all those things are wonderful and good and important. But in that sometimes I think we can fail to understand the very nuanced, fundamental focus of our religion, right? We can often think about the gospel in these very kind of simple terms and kind of gloss over it without fully understanding what it really is, what the gospel really means for our lives and the depths of what we actually believe in. Because the gospel is really an amazing, amazing thing. And yet so many people, even if they claim to understand it, fail to really grasp it. I'm sure you can think of so many individuals where they've maybe heard the gospel message and maybe they want to raise their hands to accept it. And yet even in your own life, you saw how eventually that claim to faith eventually washed away. You think of like the, the parable of the four soils, how there would be many people who think they are safe, who think they're grasping the gospel and the good news, and yet they don't really understand it. And eventually it's shown that they're not actually saved. I'm sure you know of many people where they say they're believers, and yet when you look at their life, you see how they interact with other people. Something just seems a little off. For some, it's because maybe they're just always grumbling and bitter and crabby. Maybe for some it's because they live with no urgency and yet you see what the Bible says about the gospel, what it means to follow Jesus Christ, and you see their lives and there's this disconnect. And then the danger for us living in America is that we are so familiar with the gospel message. You hear about it from so many different kinds of people. And yet many times what we are saying, what we are teaching other people, and maybe even what we believe fails to match up with what the gospel really is. I often think about what Paul says in Galatians 1 verse 6. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That is sentence the eternal fire. Paul's saying that you need to make sure you really understand what the gospel is and you cannot distort it because if you do, there are serious, serious consequences. And that's why this morning as we're closing out our series on God's good news, I want to encourage you guys to think about what the gospel really is. What does it mean for our lives and are we really living in light of what it says? And so to look at the gospel 
You know, there are many passages we can draw from, and we will look at a number of passages, but I want to kind of hone in on one very famous verse. It's Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. This is a verse that many of us have heard growing up if you've been in church your whole life. It's something that you memorize in Awana from a very young age. And yet what it's actually saying is so profound that it has confounded scholars and pastors for hundreds and thousands of years. It's a truth that we need to remind ourselves of, that we need to fully understand, that we need to remind ourselves because we often forget it. And yet this is the core of what the gospel is. Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a very simple verse. Many of us know it. Many of us have it memorized. And my hope is that this morning we can be reminded and encouraged of what we actually see here. And so if you want to really summarize the gospel, I want to look at it this way. The gospel teaches us that there are two ways that we must surrender to Jesus Christ. That what the gospel is, is that we must surrender to Jesus in two specific ways. We must recognize and confess these two truths. Number one, that Jesus is Savior. And number two, that Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Lord. And so first, let's look at this first part, that Jesus is the Savior. He is the one who has saved us from our sins. And look at that first part of our verse here. For the wages of sin is death. There's a lot going on there. And the Bible teaches, the gospel teaches that God is a holy God, that he is set apart. He is totally unlike us. He is perfect in his character. He is sinless in his character. He is fully separate from all of us. And that we as, we as people, because we are created by our God, we actually have an obligation to worship and to glorify him. Now you see that in Romans chapter one, that God is our creator. He has made us for himself. And therefore the reason that we exist is to glorify him. But the issue for every single one of us is that we have failed to give God the honor he deserves, right? We have failed to glorify him. We have failed to worship him. We do not live according to his commands and his law. And what you see in the book of Romans all throughout is that every single one of us, we are wicked because we have rebelled against God. That because he has given us the laws given in the books of the Bible, he has told us what we must do in order to have a relationship with him. Every one of us has broken every single one of those commands. We are all sinners. But when you think of sinners, what you, when you think about what it means to sin, it's not just that we've broken some kind of arbitrary rules. It's, just not, it's not that we've just done something that kind of displeases God. The idea of us being sinners is that every one of us is in full rebellion against God. That we have actually attacked God in our actions. We attack God in our thoughts. We have offended him. We have fully rejected him as our master. We are all sinners. And I know a lot of us, our tendency is to think that we're half-decent people, isn't it? Now, many of us, even if we're Christians, we recognize that we are sinners. We will say that out loud. And yet, deep down inside, we really think that we're half-decent people. That you can point to 10 people, even in this room, that you know are way worse than you. But the Bible teaches that every one of us is more wicked than we can even fathom. 
Now you look at Romans 3, verse 10 through 12. It says, none is righteous, no, not one. None understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He's saying there is not a single person in existence that can be considered good, and every one of us is fully flawed and sinful. You've probably heard that term original sin, which is just saying that every one of us, because we are born from our ancestor Adam, are born into our sinful nature. Every one of us is in rebellion against God. And what you see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3 is even more condemning. It says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's not even just that we've kind of offended God. Paul is saying we are totally depraved. He's saying that we are like spiritual corpses. We are like the walking dead roaming the earth. That everything in us is only wanting to pursue evil. Everything in us is wanting to hate God. Even the things that you think are good are actually done to please yourselves. Every one of us is a follower of Satan. And every one of us is more evil than you can possibly fathom. See, I remember reading about this, learning about theology growing up, and kind of knowing it was true in my head. But there was a day that came when I finally understood this to be true. And I used to be really involved in a lot of ministries that were done with kind of what you would see as the underbelly of society. Uh, working with a lot of people that were homeless and criminals in various capacities and some kind of rehabilitation or in some cases actually in prison or jail. And so it was really interesting being able to talk with people that many of us would consider to be the worst of the worst. I remember going and talking to a murderer, thinking that he would feel different. I remember talking to these murderers, thinking that they would almost feel inhuman. They would be weird and strange. But what struck me the most is that talking to them felt no different than talking to any person in this room. That they were very much just like any person you would see on the street or even here in Bible study. They still had a sense of humor. They still had a personality. And what I realized on that day when I was talking to those murderers was that every person really is the same. That though our sins may look different on the outside, it all comes from the same place. That though there are people that would go to the extreme of killing another person with their bare hands, that if you have this little kid like a son or daughter that's yelling at their sibling, that's the same form of anger and hatred. It comes from the same place. That when you have a person that's trying to seek attention on social media or seeking attention from the friends, they were no different than the drug addicts that I saw seeking fulfillment from their heroin. That though the externals might look different, ultimately it comes from the same sinful heart. We experience the same desires. We experience the same sinful tendencies. And that is why God says, that is why Paul says that every one of us are dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, there is not a person here that is more wicked than the person next to you. Every one of us is fully fallen and fully depraved. We are 100% in rebellion against God. And that is why Paul says, for the wages of our sin is death. That the just deserts of our sin, what we really deserve because of what we've done, is nothing short of death, of punishment, that we actually owe 
that. Right? The idea of wages is a salary that you deserve because of what you've done. And the idea is that because of our sins, what we are rightfully owed, what we are justly owed is death. Because we have offended a holy, eternal God, the thing that we owe, the thing that we deserve is nothing but an eternal sentence. And that's why you see here that the wages of our sin is death, that our punishment is hell. That the fate of every single person that does not know God is eternity in suffering. And I was looking at what the Bible says about hell and just thinking about how awful it really is, how total it really is, and how terrifying it is for every person that would be there. As you look at Matthew thirteen fifty, it's described as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is that the agony is so bad that people are just spending eternity wailing in pain. It's described as the eternal fire in Jude 1.17. It's called the lake of fire and the second death in Revelation 21.8. In Revelation 20.10, it's called the place of torment day and night. It is a real place. Right, there's this tendency for all of us to think that hell doesn't really exist. And even if we say we know it does, we don't really live like it. We don't really think about what it means that people will suffer there. And yet I tell you and I warn you that it is a real fate. It was just a couple of years ago that I went through probably the worst sickness of my life. I still to this day don't know exactly what it was, but it was some kind of, uh, of combination of a fever, a flu, or, or food poisoning, something all of the above. And I remember sitting there in my bed and the world was spinning like I had vertigo. I was sitting in the room, and yet I felt like everything, the whole world, was spinning 360 degrees nonstop. I was tossing and turning. I could barely think straight. And I remember being this place where if there was a button that I could press to end my life, I would have pressed it. That's how bad the agony was in my mind. And so I remember just sitting there tossing and turning, thinking that hours were going by. And yet when I finally got the strength to reach for my phone and look at the time, only 45 minutes had passed. Right? In my mind, it was going on forever and ever, and yet it was really a short period of time. But that's what agony does, doesn't it? That what is really a short amount of time feels like an eternity. And when I was studying on, on hell, what I realized is that what's going to happen is so far beyond any amount of suffering that I could even fathom in my mind. That what I experienced thinking was awful was actually just a fraction of what every person would feel that does not know Christ. And so I ask you, really, as you're thinking about the gospel, when was the last time you thought about death? When was the last time you thought about what hell really is? When was the last time you thought about what it means that every single person that does not know Christ is going to face an eternity in hell? Because that is reality. We need to see death as a reality. We need to see that life is finite and every person will face judgment. And I think about this week, right? I think about all the stuff that's going on in the world right now and how much we're being reminded of the truth. It was just a week ago that Kobe Bryant, such a famous individual, died tragically. And I was listening to all the commentaries and people talk about his death and how so many people were saying he felt invincible, right? That he, of all people in the, the NBA community, seemed like they were going to last forever. And yet he died just like that. Now, there wasn't a single person that was expecting it. 
Right? You think of the coronavirus that's spreading all over Asia, all over the world. And I know here in our community, we don't really sense the urgency of it, but when you talk to people that are in China, in Asia, it is crazy what's going on, that everyone is really thinking about their life. But that needs to be the mentality of every believer, that we realize that death is certain. We realize that we are all at death's doorstep and that we are all going to face judgment. Uh, Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. That there is not a single person in this room that is good. Every one of us is a sinner, and because of that, we deserve death. And that is why Jesus Christ is so amazing. That Jesus Christ came, the gospel says that Jesus Christ who came to save us from our sins. And when you look at Romans 6, 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That Jesus came to take the punishment for our sins. The reason that we do not have to fear death is because he has accomplished what only he could accomplish. That Jesus was fully man and fully God, and he lived the perfect life. He was the one human being that did not deserve death, and yet... He died on that cross, didn't he? And you hear this amazing transformation. In 1 Peter 2.24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Have you guys heard the term substitutionary atonement? I know it sounds like something that's really out there. It's for scholars, but it means so much. What this passage is saying, what you see in the New Testament is that Jesus, the man who deserved no punishment, the man that was perfect, he actually took our punishment and guilt on himself. And then his righteousness, his perfection, he took that and put it on us. That is what Jesus did on the cross. That is what we have as Christians See, I I used to have this idea in my head that that when you become a Christian, God just sorts of forgets all of your sin. That he just like, you know, doesn't even realize it's there anymore. And that's so far from the truth. See, it's not that God just can choose to not see our sin. But the reason that we can have a relationship with God is because when he looks at us, he sees that our sin is actually paid for. Because when he looks at us, he's not seeing us. He's not seeing our righteousness He's seeing the righteousness of Christ. Then when he looks at us, he doesn't see us as the objects of wrath that we are. He sees the righteousness and the perfection of his son. And for that reason, we can have a relationship with him. You see this again in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That we, though we are sinners, we can be considered justified. That we can stand before God in the courtroom, and though we have indeed committed heinous acts against him, he can still say, not guilty. Not because we're amazing. Not because we do stuff that somehow merits us. But because he sees his son. He sees what Jesus did on the cross, and therefore we can be considered innocent. See, it's at the cross that mercy and justice and God's love find their perfect harmony. 
That God is just, he must condemn sinners. And yet because of his mercy, he chose to send Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. And that's why I want to go back to Romans 6.23, right? It says the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That is that eternal life, freedom from death, freedom from hell is not anything that we can earn, right? And I tell you, so many believers, they will say that they understand that their actions do nothing. And yet so many people walk around with this prideful attitude, this like judgmental attitude, like, look at how good I am. Look at how bad these people are. And when you have that attitude, I'm telling you, it means that you don't fundamentally understand the gospel. You don't fundamentally understand our sinful nature, the wickedness that falls in every single one of us. Because you look at Isaiah 64, 6, and there it says that our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. That's even the best things you do, even the most holy things you do are disgusting before God. They do nothing to increase your state. And when you really understand that fact, that will change your posture and heart and demeanor so much. Now you look at the parable of the, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, and you see how this religious guy who did all the right things, he's standing before God thinking of how good he was. And you have this man who was a traitor to his people. He was the scum of the earth. He's beating his breast saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That the posture of the person who receives forgiveness, the person who really does have Jesus as their savior, is a person who has a posture of humility and brokenness and meekness. That when you really understand that your actions do nothing before God, your whole demeanor will be different. Your whole posture will be changed. You will look at yourself. You will look at other people. You will look at everything around you with a whole different attitude because you know there is nothing good inside of you. And I ask you this, right? Is this really your mentality? As you think about how you view yourself, how you view your actions in relations to other people, how do you really think about yourself? Do you see how you're kind of measuring up more than other people? Or are you broken over your sin? Are you broken over the fact that every one of us has fallen before God? Because if you want to know what it means to believe that Jesus is your Savior, that is what it costs. It's to say that there is nothing good in me. That the only way I can be right before God is to say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need your righteousness over me. Please save me. And when you understand that, that is what it means to have Jesus as your Savior. You are fully clinging onto him, not just in word, but in deed. Not just in what you say to other people, but in your heart posture. It changes everything for how you see life and yourself and God. So what is the gospel? Is that we see Jesus as our Savior. We confess Jesus as our Savior. There's also a second element here. And that Jesus is also our Lord. That when we recognize that Jesus is the Savior for us, that there is nothing good in us, that we must cling on to him, we must confess him as our Savior and confess our sins, that the second aspect, what always comes with that, is that we confess Jesus as our Lord. And again, turning back to Romans 6.23, here's what you see. For the wages of sin is death, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ 
Jesus our Lord. That's a very loaded term. You know, back in the Old Testament, you know, back when, when God was known as Yahweh, when the people of Israel were the only people following him, they would call him Adonai, that is the Lord. And the idea of calling Yahweh Lord is to say that they are in full submission to him. To call someone Lord in that day is to say that you are my master. You are the one that I will listen to. Everything you tell me to do, I will do. I no longer have a will of my own. And I mentioned this before, but I think back to so many movies that I used to watch about the, the knights back in the medieval time, right? And I always thought it was so interesting. You would have these people that are clad in armor, that are strong, that can be independent and do anything. And yet so many of these individuals would give up their life for a two-year-old prince that isn't even potty trained. Have you ever thought about how weird that is? That you have these fully grown men who can slaughter hundreds of people. And yet when it comes to some little punk that doesn't even know how to take care of himself, they would do anything for that person, right? That when he gets older, four or five, if he wants some kind of food, he say, yes, my Lord, and they would do whatever he asks. And as absurd as that is, the reason they do that is because they understand their position to their prince. Right? They understand that they have a master. They understand that there is a person that is over them. And it doesn't matter how strange or weird the request may be, they're going to listen to that person. And the idea of lordship seen in the Old Testament, when God was called Adonai or Lord, was that exact same principle. And when you call Jesus Lord, when you call God Lord, it's the idea that he is the supreme sovereign over all things. And you see this same idea of Lord carried over into the New Testament. The word kurios. That was the word used to describe Lord. That was the word used to describe Yahweh whenever they were translating the Old Testament. And the idea that just as Yahweh, as God the Father, is Lord, Jesus is our Lord. And he is the one we submit to. And you see in John chapter 20, verse 20, as Thomas is calling out to Jesus, he says, My Lord and my God. When you look at Revelation 19, 16, at the very ends of the earth, as all nations, all peoples will come before Jesus, that they will call him the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so when you think about what the gospel is, what does it mean to become a Christian? What it means to dedicate your life to him is to say that Jesus is your Lord. That my life is no longer my own. My desires are no longer my own. My ambitions, my goals for how I'm planning the next five and ten years are no longer my own. I am only seeking to obey after God. I think this is the element of salvation that is so often lost in our presentations of the gospel, isn't it? That when you look at the gospel of Mark, what we've been studying, that finally when people realize that Jesus is the Messiah, they're thinking life is going to be great. Right? It's going to be, it's going to, there's going to be no suffering. It's going to be nothing but prosperity. And yet Jesus turns to them and he says this. And calling to the crowd, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For anyone who would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. He's saying, do you want to be my disciple? You want to be a follower of me? You're going to have to let go of every other thing in your life and pursue me. If you really want to be a Christian, you can no longer think about your personal desires or ambitions or aspirations. You have to give it all up and follow me. 
Right? Think about the many parables that you hear of Jesus talking about what this means, right? You have the parable of the, the treasure hidden in the field, that when you really understand how valuable eternal life is, you will sell everything to get that field. You don't care anymore about yourself. You are only seeking to follow after God. It's the same thing with the, the parable of the pearl of great price, that you will sell everything because you know how valuable the thing is that you are getting. And this is something that not many people do when they're thinking about coming to Christ, about following after him. You hear in Luke chapter 14, verse 27, 28, Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Do you understand what Jesus is saying there? He's saying, you want to be my disciple. You want to claim all these things. You need to count the cost. Are you really willing to give up everything? Are you seriously ready to give up whatever you want and be my disciple? Because so few people actually do that, especially in church. It's so easy to call Jesus as Lord, and yet so few people are willing to do what that actually means, right? I mean, we know that the Bible talks a lot about giving back to his people and giving sacrificially, not just to the church, but to the needs of other people. And yet when I talk to individuals, right, what often happens is they say, well, I have these needs of myself and I have these things that I like to do. I have to make sure I have this vacation or this nice thing. And you know what? I, I don't have any money left over, so I guess I can't really give to others. And you see there how the priorities are all backwards, right? You do what is convenient, and I see people where they're, they're trying to raise up their kids and they want them to go to good schools and there's nothing going to a good school. Or there, there's nothing wanting to do well in sports. But then you have these commands which are talking about a healthy view of community and, and fellowship in the church. And so many people are like, I'm sorry, but you know what? If my son isn't getting the grades that he needs to, if he's not taking the crazy AP classes or getting involved in sports as he should, then, then he can't be involved in church. And in every one of these types of things, right, it sounds so innocuous, it sounds so simple, but in all of our decisions, we are choosing God or something else. We are choosing one master over another. And that is not at all what it means to have Jesus as our Lord. See, when Jesus is indeed our Savior, what the gospel is saying is that when we understand that we have forgiveness of our sins, when we recognize that we have been forgiven of all, the reality for the person that understands what that really means is they say, my life is over. God, I am dead and now I am alive. I have become a new creature, which is now for you. I'm no longer living for myself. And that's why James says in James 2.17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. But he says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And I hope you understand this, right? It's not that our actions save us. It's not that you have to do certain things in order to be saved. But that when you come to a place where you understand what the gospel is saying, when you understand how broken we are as sinners, when you understand the judgment that falls on every single one of us, and when you understand that Jesus freely died for our sins and you recognize that and love that, when you confess him as your savior, God will change you. And the Holy Spirit will be in you. He will give you new desires and new ambitions and you will do what he says. 
And I, I think one of the things that we really see that illustrates this is actually the topic of baptism, which you heard about this morning. I, I always got confused reading the book of Acts. You know, you always hear about how baptism doesn't say, which is true. And yet you hear often of how closely baptism is associated with salvation, don't you? Let me read you a couple passages. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter speaking to the crowd says this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 8, when the Ethiopian eunuch finally gets saved, his first response is, What prevents me from getting baptized? And so he gets baptized. And then Paul, when he's talking about his conversion in past tense, Ananias, when he's speaking to Paul right after the conversion, he says, and why now do you wait, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And I remember growing up reading that, thinking that's so confusing, right? I thought baptism doesn't save you. And the reality is it doesn't, right? You have to take the whole account of scripture, all the parts of theology to understand how it works together. But what I think you're saying is this. That baptism was always the external manifestation of an internal change. That when you are saved on the inside, when God transforms your heart, you're going to live differently. You're going to obey God. You're going to seek after his ways. And the first thing, the first demonstration of that obedience is baptism. And it's not that I want to camp on that like that's the cardinal sin, but I bring it up because it's so endemic of kind of where our culture is, right? That in general, we have this mentality that I'm going to obey God as long as it works for me, as long as it's convenient. It's kind of like going on a cruise. Hey, you know, one of, uh, one, of my, one of my friends here is getting ready for a cruise in a couple months, and that's totally fine. I've never been able to go on one because I get motion sick. But I think the mentality of a person thinking about a cruise is very much how we think about baptism and also very much how we think about life. You know, maybe I'll go on this cruise when my schedule works out, when finances are right, when I have the right people around me. Uh, I would love to go. That sounds like it'd be such a great time. And you know what? Maybe one day I will do that. I will go as long as things work out, right? And you know what? Like, I've heard about baptism, and maybe this is something I should do. And, you know, I'm kind of afraid just to be able to be in front of people and talk about the fact that I'm saved. But, you know, one day I'll do it. Or, you know, I, I know that God tells me that adultery is wrong, that living with my girlfriend is bad. But, you know, things are really difficult right now, and one day we will eventually separate. All of these mentalities are one and the same. And so when we confess that Jesus is Lord, it's not that obedience is optional, but that we actually need to obey God with everything. The mark of a true believer, what the gospel is proclaiming, it's not just that we can have forgiveness of our sins, though we have forgiveness of our sins, but that true salvation, true internal change, true reception of the Holy Spirit will show itself in obedience. And that is the gospel message. And when you proclaim to those around you, when you think about sharing the good news, you believe that Jesus is our Savior. You say, there is nothing good in me. There is no semblance of righteousness. I am condemned to hell. And yet God, in his mercy, has sent his Son for my sins. That is a freeing thought. That is an amazing thought. 
The, the thing that on the day of judgment, when we stand before God and he's weighing up all of our sins, that the only reason that we can enter into his life is we point to Jesus Christ. We say, he is our savior. He is our redeemer. Jesus, save me. And that in response to having the salvation, that we trust that Jesus is indeed our Lord. That we are actually turning and saying, I have died to myself. I no longer live for me. Jesus, what do you want me to do? That's the heart of true faith. That is the heart of salvation. And that is the heart of the gospel. And just in closing, I want you guys to understand this. Right? Oftentimes when we get into these types of, of messages where we're looking at the hard thing of Scripture, we can get into this feeling of just heaviness, right? And there is indeed much heaviness in the gospel. And yet, what does the gospel actually mean? The word evangelion. It's good news, isn't it? That when the angel came to Mary and Joseph, he said this, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. When we're breaking down what the gospel is, we understand that, yes, it costs everything. Yet, yes, it demands sacrifice. Yes, it demands giving up whatever you desire. And yet, it is still good news. That we understand that we can have a relationship with God. That we understand that we can be connected to him that we can know the God of the universe. And this is something that every one of us, even if you claim to be a Christian, needs to dwell on. I love what Piper says about this. He says, for many, Christianity has become the grinding out of general doctrinal laws from collections of biblical facts, but childlike wonder and awe have died. The scenery and poetry and music of the majesty of God have dried up like a forgotten peach at the back of a refrigerator. See, Piper isn't saying that doctrine is bad. He, of all people, would affirm that. But I think many of us, especially those who claim to be believers, have lost the awe of what the gospel is. That many of us have forgotten how amazing, how joyous, how beautiful the gospel news is. And so I would challenge you all to be thinking, if you call yourself a Christian, do you really understand the gospel? Do you meditate on the gospel? Do you praise God because of the gospel? Do you worship God because of the gospel? And then do you therefore go and share the news because of the gospel? See, when we're thinking about this whole evangelism series, when we're thinking about next week, wanting to go door to door and share the gospel, yes, it's helpful to be commanded. Yes, it's helpful to be told that you need to do this. But the greatest motivation should be joy. You should want to share the good news because of what it means. You should have a desire to talk about it with those around you because of how amazing it is. And then especially if you're sitting here this morning and you are not a believer, that if you are a person that has the wrath of God upon you, that you know you are a sinner, that you would see this truly for what it is, that this is good news from God himself. That when you turn and repent, when you confess Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, when you give up your life to him, that you can have eternal life. That you can have his yoke and his burden, which is indeed light. And you can have the good news. 
And so as we're closing today, as we're closing this whole series we're doing, I want you guys to ask yourself this question, right? What is the gospel to you? Why is it good news? Why do you believe in it? Let's pray. God, we confess that every one of us is so fallen. We confess that we don't fully understand what it is that we have in you, Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you would help all of us as a congregation to have a right understanding of who we are. That we would not take our life lightly. We would not take this life that you've given us lightly, but you would show us what it means to live out the gospel truth. And so help us, Lord. And if we don't know you, may we turn to you and follow your name. May you help us who call ourselves Christians to follow Jesus, to be in awe of what we have of eternal life. And that every one of us would live this life sober-minded. That we would see ourselves as we really are. We would have a right understanding of what you have done for us. That we would indeed be in awe of this good news. So help us now. Be with us now to carry out this truth, which is so difficult on our own, which we know we cannot do on our own. Oh, Holy Spirit, empower us. Help us and change us. We beg of you. We pray these things in Jesus' wonderful and holy name. Amen.